classic crew, and welcome to Classically Ever After, the Classically Abbey podcast with Jacob and Abby Roth. Twice a month, we will discuss the ins and outs of marriage and relationships, parenthood, classic living, and navigating the modern era while maintaining traditional values. From philosophy to practical advice, you'll find out what we really think. So welcome to today's episode of Classically Ever After. Today we're going to be finishing up the topic we last time talked about, which was the idea of hyper-masculinity and hyper-femininity. Specifically as portrayed in Fight Club and Breakfast at Tiffany's, though we did the Breakfast at Tiffany's section already, so now it's just Fight Club (laughs) o'clock. We watched both movies. For those of you who missed last episode, make sure to go ahead and listen to that first. It'll give you some background on the things we're talking about today. But we watched Breakfast at Tiffany's, and by we, I mean I. I watched Breakfast at Tiffany's for my AV club. Plug plug for my Classically Abbey Substack. If you're not already a member, you should absolutely join. And we discussed kind of the idea of what hyperfemininity looks like. And then right after we dis- we watched the movie Fight Club, which really showed a, a good comparison of hypermasculinity and hyperfemininity. Uh, yeah. Well, the movie itself doesn't make the comparison, but when you're going to watch it, Right after having seen Breakfast at Tiffany's or having a multi-hour conversation about it uh, with your wife, which was my case, (laughs) you can really see a comparison of the two things. And right off the bat, let's uh, recapitulate what we mean when we say hyper with regard to masculinity or femininity. When we say hyper-femininity or hyper-masculinity, we mean a situation where someone or a culture or whatever – is taking some of the core trappings of femininity or the core trappings of masculinity and taking those signals or markers and just bloating them out of all proportion to what they actually serve a function doing. Mm -hmm. So what does that actually look like in reality? Well, when we were talking about Breakfast at Tiffany's and we're talking about hyperfemininity, you could say that a trait of femininity that uh, defines women in a way that doesn't define men to the same degree is a form of agreeableness and compassion that's about making people feel comfortable and loved and valued, right? There's the whole idea of women setting the social situation and being a wonderful hostess who brings people in and really creates a home kind of atmosphere, makes it inviting, Things like that. If you turn the dial on that up to 11, as it were, and you just kind of take it out of all proportion, you have the call girl kind of thing. Not literally directly the prostitute component, but the idea of a woman who takes that idea of friendliness and charm and just makes it a bloated, weird version of itself. So you have the Holly Go Lightly character from Breakfast at Tiffany's, whose entire job and kind of role that she's done for herself professionally and personally is to make people feel as if they're on the inside of an intimate social relationship when there's no substance there. So it's not this compassion, this warmth serving its role of actually creating real bonds between people, but instead it's a consumable product that's had kind of like you're buying something off a shelf. Mm-hmm. Or it's like uh, I don't know, a waitress at a restaurant being very friendly. She doesn't like you. She's not your friend. She's doing it for a tip. She's selling you the experience of someone being friendly but there's nothing underlying it. So that Mm -hmm. would be the hyper version of femininity there. Another example. It's femininity kind of severed from the reason why femininity is good. Yes. It's femininity severed from womanhood in action serving a role. Mm -hmm. It's now a consumable product. It's kind of, uh, I've read some interesting criticisms of like advertisement culture and modern pornographic culture and the idea that you can sell sex and advertisements with just a picture of a woman's legs. Mm-hmm. Right? Like that, it's kind of in a very physically direct way, an example of hyperfemininity, the sexualization of just legs, mm-hmm. right? Not the woman they're attached to, not the whole picture of the woman and womanliness. No, just we're going to sexualize legs or whatever <laughs> else, as it were. So when it comes to men, what would hypermasculinity be? We saw Fight Club. And for those not familiar with the movie Fight Club, it's from 1999. It's a movie that's an adaptation of the Chuck. Polanyuk. That's an interesting last name. I'm going to say Polanyuk is the pronunciation. But Chuck Polanyuk's book, Fight Club. <laughs> and it's a very 1990s movie. Oh, my gosh. Guys, it's – I would – okay. Let's just 
<laughs> We're going to talk just... about the movie itself for a little bit before we get to the topic of hypermasculinity because Abigail has uh, well some strong reactions to it. She had never seen it before, and I, as a I'd say pretty bog standard high school male in the mid two thousands, saw it many many, many times. (laughs) Before we get into today's episode, make sure to stay tuned till the very end for our highlight of the week. Yeah. So I want to preface this episode for those of my followers who are more squeamish or more innocent, uh, maybe don't watch this movie. Uh, it's, (laughs) it's pretty intense, pretty dark, pretty, uh, gruesome, gruesome, grotesque, hard to watch. I I did not enjoy watching this film. It made me very uncomfortable, but it did spark uh, the fodder for what we're about to talk about, so that's good. But it was just not something I would recommend to many women, I would say. Some women really like this movie, and they're the women who feel, I think, cool and like it's a cool girl kind of thing. I like this movie, but I, I don't know any... I I'm can't hang. I'm one of right. the boys. <laughs> uh, apparently, I Although cannot you are, hang. You are one of the boys. Yes. Uh, we do have our boys group chat, and you are the woman in it. But I'm not one of the guys. I'm like the Snow White to the Seven Dwarves kind of thing. Yes, it's that comparison, mm-hmm. and it's uh, Millie, right? Millie from, from Seven, seven Brides, Brides and Seven, seven Brothers. Brothers. Yes, you're very much mother hen to this uh, gruesome allotment of males. Do you think that? Seven Brides for Seven Brothers is a play on Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs? No. Okay, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure for a second. My mind went, is there a possibility that this movie... There's an overlap and vague theme of Mother Hen to group of seven guys who do manual labor and are very (laughs) maybe rough-hewn, except that that's the established dynamic in Snow White, whereas this becomes a dynamic for a brief period of time in Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, and at no point is it a bunch of simps collating around one woman, but instead it's a much more directly familial relationship because she is their older sister-in-law. Right, right. Well, not to get too off topic, but yes. So before we start with Fight Club uh, discussing the idea of hypermasculinity, yeah, I did want to preface by saying I don't necessarily recommend you go out and watch this movie. I think that this is... If you are a woman of poise and grace and elegance. Yeah. uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I very much get that. it's not a bad movie. I... I mean, I personally don't think it's a great movie, but I don't think it's a bad movie. It's just not something I think for those of you who are like, oh, I don't like to watch things that will leave uh, memories in my head of like gross images. This is that movie. Do not watch that. Yeah. So (laughs) I made made I recommended Abigail watch Fight Club with me because it'd been a long time since I'd seen it. And I noticed that in our review of movies uh, we watched a lot of movies that I had grown up on, as it were, watched in high school, watched in middle school, even early college. And a big theme of, well, the classically Abby content is how she and I have both come a long way since our previous perspective. And we know a lot about kind of the modernist liberal view on things because we were those people. It gets ever longer ago and I feel old, but not that. Long ago, mm-hmm. I like to think. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I saw Fight Club. I love Fight Club. Ooh, I should watch it now that I'm religious, now that I'm conservative, now that I'm a father, now that I have a wife, all <laughs> these things. And I will say it's still a great movie from a movie-making perspective. But boy, howdy, do I have a different opinion on what it's actually trying to say. And I think that what it's trying to say is not the most negative thing in the world, but it's like anything else that tries to make a message and its artistic method is to dwell on the creepy, the grotesque, the slimy, the sleazy, even if it has a fundamentally good message at the end of it, you still had to watch an unabashed presentation of this stuff to get there. Right. It's uh, not fully comparable, but it's enough like this. It's like when that horrible pedophilic movie Cuties was on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Everyone was up in arms. And then a few people watched it who were conservative and they were saying, actually, guys, this movie is criticizing the sexualization of children and saying that a more traditional lifestyle, in that case, traditional Muslim, is better, even if there's a middle ground to be found between fully traditional and unassimilated and then overly assimilated and modern sexualization. Yeah, you can make that pitch, but they still presented little girls twerking on stage. Right. Like you're, you're still you're still putting children that 
as Art Zone Fight Club. In that Club, position. You still have all the gross, grimy stuff on screen. It might be serving your message, but you still have to slog your way through watching it. It didn't affect me that much because, well, I'm a guy and yeah. I grew up watching this stuff. But um, I think you had a similar reaction to watching Fight Club and the sense of it as you did to watching the Joker movie with Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah. I mean, I think that I honestly think that Fight Club is more nauseating than Joker. Really? Yeah. There's a, I mean, even just talking about, there's a scene in the film where. Which one? Fight oh, Club? In Fight Club. Okay. Where uh, the Brad Pitt and um, what's the name? Edward of Norton. Edward Norton need to get fat from a hospital because they're a going to make. liposuction clinic. They go dumpster diving for liposuction <laughs> fat biomedical hazard waste bags to make soap out of. Right. Because that's how their little anarchist enterprise is funded. Exactly. And it's not even like the gruesome fights where you're seeing people beat to a pulp. But the idea of just holding human fat and then it gets ripped. The bag that they're holding gets ripped and like spills on Edward Norton. That, spills on Brad Pitt, babe. Oh, whoops. Spills on Brad Pitt. Well, spoiler alert. Oh, oh no. That's not spoiler right. alert. Oh. Uh, they're the same person. But, <laughs> like, even that scene is just gruesome. Like, that's gross. It's upsetting to watch in a way that Joker, I don't remember feeling the same way. I remember feeling, like, dank and dirty and down because it's gray and depressing. And there are things about it that are like that. But it's not as visually, here are these disgusting images that you have to see. It's not as, I guess, literally visceral mm-hmm. in the sense of you have actual viscera on screen. Right, right. Um, before we proceed, and I would like to draw more of a comparison with Joker, I think I, or you, we, should do a recap on the plot of Fight Club for those who have not seen it so that they know what we're talking about, and for those who have not seen it in a good long while. Well, why don't you start? Because you're more familiar with the movie than I am, given that I only watched it once and I watched it over the course of three nights and I have a baby that doesn't sleep all the way through the night. So I'm not always as <laughs> as with it as memory competent, as memory competent as you are. And you've seen it multiple times in high school uh, and now so just, many times. just a, yeah. a recap now. So go ahead and give a summary. Okay. So the plot of Fight Club We have Edward Norton as our main character. He is a crushed, empty, uh, kind of meandering through life office drone who works for an automotive company and something to do with recalling vehicles if there's a problem. His job's not important. What's important is that it's a very 1990s office days kind of uh, plot here where he feels this life has no meaning, no material direction, and consumerism is the only thing that he has. Does he have a girlfriend? No. Does he have family? Yeah, in the background, I guess, but they don't exist. Does he have friends? No, he has people who are at work. It's part of that 1990s theme of alienation by just participating in the corporate grind and how the fact that you have a job and it's stable and you're comfortable, I guess, physically and have money to buy things is not spiritually fulfilling. But the movie doesn't deal with spirituality in the sense of actual religion. Instead, it's just a feeling of being alive at all is what this guy lacks. Um, We follow him for a little bit. He's an insomniac. He starts going to support groups for diseases and illnesses and experiences he never had because these people are honest and alive because they feel acutely how bad their lives were. And so now he has catharsis and he actually feels something for once he can sleep. Uh, Basically from there, he meets some guy named Tyler Durden who turns out to be some wacky anarchist and they start fight clubs together, which are where men similar to him who are oppressed and alienated and uh, disaffected from the system can beat the tar out of each other because they feel alive and in the moment and they have a sense of camaraderie and release. And this eventually spins out as directed by Tyler Durden into being an actual anarchist terrorist cell against modern consumerism and capitalism where they start doing pranks and hijinks that gradually escalate more and more into acts of rebellion against society. And it culminates in Tyler having a plan to demolish major credit card companies in order to reset all the debt back to zero. And the narrator tries to stop him because he realizes it's all going too far. And then one of the great twists in movie history is that Tyler Durden does not exist. 
He is just the alter ego of the narrator and that he has been Tyler Durden as well this entire time. His best friend is actually he himself and um, he reaches some form of synthesis with the Tyler Durden persona by the end of the movie and realizes how necessary the challenge of that Tyler Durden persona to him was, uh, but also how far gone that persona is and childish it is and he becomes a whole man. Uh, that's in a nutshell what Fight Club is about in a lot of ways. And what we drew from it that we found very interesting is the role of this Tyler Durden character. So we have our disaffected narrator who's played by Edward Norton. And Edward Norton is not a bulky guy. He's in his 30s in this movie. He's a, you know, slight of frame, diminutive guy who is pretty passive in everything he does. And he's seething with resentment, but it really gets no outlet. He takes no aggressive stance towards anything. Whereas the Tyler Durden character is played by Brad Pitt. And it makes sense when you find out that the Tyler Durden is the alter ego of the main character and an idealized form of self because he's played by Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt's in tremendous shape in this movie. So much so that he's still considered kind of an icon of what guys would like to look like if they work out. He's super confident. He doesn't take no crap from anybody. He does what he wants. He's truly free of the man and is everything that like a sovereign guy who hates being an office drone would want to be. At uh, one point in the movie, when the narrator discovers that Tyler Durden is his alter ego, Tyler Durden says to him, because he's talking to Brad Pitt in the scene, uh, you know, I look the way you want to look. I talk the way you want to talk. I make love the way you want to make love. I am smart, capable. I am free in all the ways that you are not. So this is an idealized form of self for a crushed form of man. And it kind of shows it is an idealized idea of what a guy would want to be if he feels powerless. But this idealization is precisely what hypermasculinity is. It's an idea of what a man would want to be when he's shorn from any normal sense of purpose or duty to other people. And it becomes completely self-indulgent to embrace his masculinity in a way that's just kind of fun for himself for his own sake. But it builds nothing and it leads to nothing. Yeah, I remember when we, you, when we were watching it it became clear as we were watching that you were remembering why it was attractive to you as a young man. It's this idea of like, wouldn't it be cool if, mm -hmm. wouldn't it be cool if I could go and punch guys in the face and we all got together and did that? Or like, wouldn't it be cool to be the Brad Pitt of this movie? Because isn't he so hyper-masculine? Isn't it amazing? He would be able to get any woman he wanted. He would be able to fight any guy he wanted and win. And Yet, when we watched it now, you had a completely different take on what masculinity, what good masculinity, the best forms of masculinity really are. And this is not it. So what did you say that good masculinity, what masculinity really is, looks like? Sure. So to tackle this, I'll take a step back to say when you look at the movie, there you can see that there's a difference between masculinity is just being what guys do and you can take that to an extreme versus masculinity as what it is there to accomplish is fatherhood just what fathers do such that even a guy who abuses his kid yells at him does whatever is doing fatherhood or is fatherhood raising your child fulfilling duties so on and so forth. When we're really talking about fatherhood, we're talking about the normative component, what should be the case, what it's meant to serve, not just descriptive. Fathers are what fathers do. No, we, we all know that there's the aspirational component. So when it comes to masculinity, is masculinity what men do and that's just it? Or is it what men should do and what you aspire to? So the Tyler Durden character is just the extreme version of what guys do and would like to do more of, especially when you're coming from that background of like weakness and crushedness and purposelessness. It's uh, so utterly self-involved. It's really quite amazing. There's a good line from the movie where, you know, Brad Pitt, this is before the big reveal, uh, Tower Durden, Brad Pitt, and Edward Norton are on a bus together and they see an ad on the side of the bus of like a Calvin Klein underwear model and it's hypersexualized because it's a Calvin Klein ad. And so Brad Pitt says, is this what a man looks like? Or no, Edward Norton says, is this what a man looks like? To which the Brad Pitt character says, self-improvement is masturbation. Self-destruction, on the other hand, and what's really ironic about that is that 
It is the Brad Pitt, hyper-masculine, hyper-sexualized ideal self of the main character saying that self-improvement is masturbation. (laughs) What is more masturbatory than having an idealized version of self that is Brad Pitt in Fight Club? This hyper-free, I don't care about anyone, I live on Skid Row, but I still look like Brad Pitt the model. I'm a super charismatic kind of guy is your indulgent fantasy of what you would like to be and what you kind of think you are and play act at. Mm-hmm. That is the most masturbatory thing on earth from that ego perspective. And so to me, that's actually like a really good depiction of what hypermasculinity is. It's a masturbatory form of masculinity. You are being a man and embracing all this stuff for you, mm-hmm. not for what you accomplish in the world, not for your duty to anyone else, not for God and the purpose you are made with, but for you, because it's pleasing to you to be like this. And in the same way that Brad Pitt's character is very attractive to a young man, the Holly Golightly character from Breakfast at Tiffany's is in many relevant ways attractive to young women. Women still find the Breakfast at Tiffany's Holly Golightly character to be iconic. On just raw appearance, that image of Audrey Hepburn, the stylist one from the posters for it, is everywhere. It's that character that a lot of people think of as Audrey Hepburn, that classic image. So Mm -hmm. it's very attractive, this hyperform of either gender is very attractive but in fight club the hypermasculinity leads to what a bunch of guys not improving their lives because they're just literally beating each other in the face to have some false scrap of camaraderie and then what do they build to make the world better nothing it's literally an anarchist terrorist group that just makes everyone poorer at the end of the movie do they have families no do they have a future oh absolutely not what do they have they belong to like a Maoist style re-education cult where they all shave their heads, burn their hands with lye, live in a dilapidated Victorian house at the edge of town near a bunch of chemical factories giving them cancer over time and uh, end up on the FBI's most wanted list, presumably. <laughs> That's what they have because this hyper-masculinity was so attractive. What does Holly Golightly have for all her hyper-femininity? She has a revolving door of sexual and date partners, a complete sense of alienation from any form of connection looks that are her bread and butter but if you literally build your life around that you're going to be very sad 50 years old and a sense that no one belongs to anyone and that she should be miserably alone besides having that cat named cat right <laughs> like it's just this stuff is attractive but it builds nothing it affirms nothing it sustains nothing yeah i feel like there's a Jordan Peterson-esque feeling of in Fight Club of uh, Tyler Durden wanting to change the world before changing himself. And it's not to say that he doesn't want to change himself. He wants to make himself this hyper-masculine version of himself. Yes. Uh, When I I say Tyler Durden, it's actually the narrator's name. But it's a separate enough character that you kind of got to be clear because are we talking about the narrator's kind of end point at the end of the movie? Are we talking about the things said by this oppositional other personality within him who is right. an independent So I mean the character. narrator. Yeah. The narrator wants to do, well, I guess I'm confusing it because the narrator and Tyler Durden want to create this terrorist organization to fix the world, to fix the capitalistic culture in which they live. Um, and yes, Tyler Durden is encouraging the narrator. It's confusing, but in the story of the movie, he's encouraging the narrator to to give up all of these things, give up the trappings of, of what he consumerism and and all of these other things. But he's also not actually being, becoming better. He's not actually taking any steps to be a better person. He might be a better version of this hyper masculinity, but he's not a better person. He hasn't taken any steps to meet friends or to his friends or his fellow cult members that he gets to shave their heads live in bunk beds in a dilapidated flooded basement. But he's not even They're they're totally good friends, babe. But the point of that, what's interesting about that point is that he's not even among them. He is separate. Yeah, because the narrator well, one thing I want to correct about your description of the plot is that the narrator has always been skeptical of the terrorist cell part of it. Yeah. The mischief he engages in. But the terrorism is where the narrator character himself draws the line. And then he thinks he's just in conflict with and skeptical of his best friend, Tyler. Yeah. uh, As Tyler starts to have that stuff take off. And then much later on when he's 
actively trying to stop the plot, that's when he finds out that he is the same person as Tyler Durden. So the narrator is against the full extreme version of it, but he's so on board with the Tyler Durden stuff of rejecting the life he was leading. Right. It's confusing because once you realize that the narrator and Tyler Durden are the same character, then you know that the narrator is actually doing the things that Tyler Durden is doing. But does he want to? But he's not conscious about it. So it makes it more... It makes it more difficult to describe uh, in a podcast. But in any case, um, yeah, he he's not becoming the best version of manhood. He's becoming this insane terrorist. Yeah. And this hyper-masculine version of, of himself that's not good at all. So what is the difference between hyper-masculinity, toxic masculinity, Good and good masculinity, like what masculinity should be. Sure. So when you're looking at a thing like Fight Club, what I was describing before, which I think it's a throwaway line in the movie that like self-improvement is masturbation thing, Mm -hmm. but it really is actually directly relevant to so much of the rest of this stuff, which is that the hyper-masculinity thing is when you take the trappings of maleness and you take them out of balance for trying to achieve a purpose. That's the actual point of being a man, right? So the duty of a man is to be a father. What's a father? It's a man who raises his children, raises them in his culture. Protects his family. Protects his family, provides for his family, has his strength for his family. And the problem with vague terms like protect or strength or provide is that you can use these same vague terms to describe what a woman should have, a mother should have, or her family, right? Does a woman not protect her family? Is she not strong for them? Is she not tough for them? Yes, she would do all of those things. If there were a physical threat, wouldn't a mom go mama grizzly and protect her family? Yeah. So then what is the difference between what a mom owes her family and a dad owes his family? It's like, I, I get what you mean that we would use the same general terms to describe these things, but the performance on the ground looks different the aptitude for what the toughness looks like is different. A man is to take the slings and arrows kind of outside the home and in the culture and against foreign threats. And I mean foreign threats as in threats outside the home, whether it be the shock of an economy or bad people in the neighborhood or bad cultural forces outside them, whatever it is. The man's kind of more the foreign policy in that way and deals with those external things. And the mom's toughness is kind of the internal home grind Mm -hmm. and dealing with things there so it's they've got different orientations well 100 percent. i mean it's like i always say well and i want to comment on something before i make this next point (laughs) which is the idea that you were talking about the line from the movie about self-improvement it goes against everything i talk about when it when it comes to being classic which is being classic is all about becoming the best version of yourself being a the best version of a woman, being the best version of a man is becoming the best version of yourself. Self-improvement is built into being classic. And I know that this isn't this movie isn't talking about things in the in the in the world of classic. But I, I just want to mention that because I think that that's an interesting point. I think uh, the reason why I really focus on that line, because on this watch through of the movie, I found Uh, I realized how ironic it was is that the self-improvement it's referring to is exactly the Tyler Durden character, right? Mm -hmm. It's the hyper whatever form of self-improvement. It's the completely self-involved kind of arbitrary purpose-free version of self-improvement. A man should be strong. It's good for a man to be strong literally physically, but also in his character. And we're going to talk about how a man should be strong instead of being weak physically. Okay, exercise is a component of that. It's nice to go to the gym. It's nice to have some muscles. It's nice to be physically capable of doing things to defend your family and also just do physical chores around the house and also having that strength in reserve for whenever it's needed. Great. But strength for its own sake, where you're going to end up doing like bodybuilding and you're going to do your bodybuilding where it requires many hours a day, but then also the diet, but then also the lifestyle choices. If I need to get my nine hours of sleep and I need to make sure that these things don't interfere with my cortisol levels. Like we're talking really doing this muscle building from an aesthetic perspective for its own sake. And you're going to devote that much time to it. And it's going to come at the cost of doing practical tasks related to your family or even like having a family and focusing on them or anything along those lines. We're now doing self-improvement in a way that doesn't make us better equipped to do 
our duties and obligations to things, but instead it's just purely for you because it tickles your fancy. That's pretty masturbatory. Mm. In the same way that someone getting good at any one thing uh, to its really far margins to the exclusion of the efforts they would spend anywhere else in balance, that kind of gets self-involved and self-serving. And if it comes at the cost of your ability to be like functional for other people and like focused on that, then yeah, it's pretty masturbatory. Mm -hmm. Hey dad, I needed you home to help raise me. What were you doing? I was busy hitting the highest heights of my career to provide for you. But we were provided for when you weren't doing that. When you were working 50 hours a week, I was provided for. You working 90 hours a week so that you could say that you hit those heights didn't give me any more, but it meant I got a lot less of you. See, that's not the masculine version of providing for your family. That's self-improvement in terms of career ambition, but to what end? You're kind of less of a man because you didn't do your job of being a father. You just maximized being a provider, not for the family, but for your own ego. Yeah. That's masturbation. Right. So I guess taking that line out of the context of the film fits into my the idea that self-improvement is important is uh, is classic. But the idea of self-improvement in the way that you're describing it, where it's shorn of its meaning, is is masturbatory. Yeah. Being classic is entirely about being better at the stuff that you should be doing for the people who matter in a way that matters. Learn to cook. Not in a way where, like, you're going to put your kid uh, in the room and not watch them because you're going to do a seven-hour gourmet dinner every night, kind of for its own sake. But learn to cook so that you can have those experiences with your family and give them nutritive food that they enjoy and it creates a better family atmosphere, right? Like, Mm -hmm. cooking could end up being a form of self-improvement that comes at the cost of other things because you've decided it's going to be your one thing. Or cooking can be not feeding your family microwave dinners or going out to eat every night. Because you have this ability and it brings the family together. Like it's there's the good version, and there's the bad version, mm-hmm. which I guess can lead in here from like the toxic masculinity and hypermasculinity versus just we'll say a godly masculinity. Well, and before you do, I just want to go back to what you were saying before, the difference between strength for women, strength for men, providing for women, providing for men. I just want to touch on that really quickly, which is to say the strength that women have, so much of it is about being someone that your family can depend on emotionally, that you're there for them, that you can help them when they're in times of need by being that home that you you provide a physical home by homemaking, but also being an emotional home for the people in your life so that they know that if they're struggling, they can come to you and you can help them. That's a very different strength than the physical strength that men need to provide by actually protecting their family. Now, that's not to say that men don't, fathers don't also do a little bit of that emotional thing. They, they're going to do it in a different way than mothers. But it is it is a very different kind of strength and both are needed in a home for children. And that's what's so beautiful about men and women and marriages and families that are built in that traditional fashion. So yes, I wanted to address what you were well, saying. All, off that point, actually, uh, before we move on to that uh, toxic masculinity component, the strength of a woman is fire in the hearth at home mm-hmm. and the strength of a man is a fire on the end of a torch as you exit the home mm-hmm. in the sense that they're both fire they're both there to provide the heat or whatever it is but it's applied differently and there's overlap but its context is really different its purpose is really different one thing that always strikes me which i don't kind of like about this general discourse is referring to men all the time as defending their family because i think I don't know. I feel silly when I say that because how often does it come up in the fruits of a first world society that you're going to have to defend your family? Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't really come up directly. So you have to get a little bit more broad with it. And it makes sense to because still the same principle applies of the man goes out to take the burden of doing things outside the home, dealing with the travails of the out of the home world in order to make sure that his family is provided for and has a stable basis at home for the mom to shape into something actually truly wonderful. And so there's an overlap in that the mom provides inspiration and compassion and a bolstering of self that you are good. You are loved. You are capable. This is a place of joy. This is a place of purpose and belonging. Uh, 
Yeah, that is weathering the storm of what the outside world can do to you when it like beats you down or makes you feel sad or whatever. But it's different from the dad going out and securing against the challenge of the outside world the basic materials and provisions that you need for the home. And nowadays it's by salary, but it's all the same thing. But I also think that there's, you know, as far as the strength of of a man versus the strength of a woman, I actually think that the traditional physicality of that is beautiful. And and sh- I think there's a reason that women are attracted to this like lumberjack thing oh, yeah. where it's like, if a woman is the one at home, she's the one cooking, she's the one cleaning. I know that people will hate that, but she is the one cooking. She's the one cleaning. She's the one hugging. She's the, she's the merciful one. And the father is, you know, building the furniture when, when it comes in the mail or like doing the physical act of home that make the home better and more livable. That's a really great dynamic and one that should be encouraged. I also think that, um, as far as that relationship, the man is judgment. The woman is mercy. Now that's not to say that men aren't also comforting, but I think in those families where women, where the mother is the person that the children fear, it it doesn't work very well because it's a topic, but I, I know what you mean. I just think it falls under judgment to me falls under a different kind of strength than mercy does. I think that both show a different kind of strength being merciful in those moments when you don't think you you want to be when you don't feel it that's much more feminine and being judgmental in the moment where you don't really want to be judge have judgment on your children that takes a different kind of strength that's very masculine i i I think that these two kinds of strengths are really the beautiful again beautifully shown in that husband-wife marriage yeah um part of this i know the strain of the conversation is i'm trying to think of the terms that would help distinguish male and female strength uh, because of what I was describing earlier about like the terms being so vague, that they overlap, even though we know that substantively they're very asymmetrical in practice. So I'm trying to think, I think along the lines that a man's strength is the strength to deal with things mm-hmm. and the strength of a woman is the strength to maintain things. I honestly think that this should be a different podcast. Yeah. We should maybe, maybe this is our next podcast is talking about the differences of not only strength, but, but different qualities we want to talk about in men and in women in the home. Yeah. Um, I think that could be a really interesting the role topic. The in family as a unit. Yeah. Uh, I agree. So to turn the conversation back, back to, to hyper-masculinity and toxic masculinity. Yeah. <laughs> so if masculinity is both what men are and what they should be, then toxic masculinity is when things inherent to maleness are not functioning as they should, right? Aren't put in balance to serve society well and have that maleness accomplish what it should. Protector and guy who's maintaining the tradition and guy who's providing for his family and guy who is pro-social and abiding by the right rules and stuff like that. But instead is the drives that drive a man being indulged for their own sake in a way that's antisocial. So what's the difference between that and hypermasculinity? And I do want to quickly say that we should we should probably mention that toxic masculinity as a phrase. Oh, that's is, that's absolutely is, poison. I was going to get awful. to that in a little bit. Yeah, yeah. but but yeah. there there is a point underlying the idea that one could use the phrase toxic masculinity. Like you could say toxic masculinity, and if you sheared it of its political connotations. There is a there there mm-hmm. for when some could be toxically masculine in the same way that some could be toxically feminine. Mm-hmm. Where this would differ from a hyper-masculinity or hyper-femininity is that the toxic masculinity is when you indulge in these features of male drives in a way that actively harms others. Mm-hmm. And so an example would be a bully. A bully is a guy who seeks status. He seeks to rise in hierarchy. He seeks to be domineering and leading. He seeks strength, but he does it all in a way that ignores justice. It ignores honor. It ignores even courtesy. It's just fulfilling your drives by an exertion of dominance and a display of force without any accompanying form of virtue. So you're just a real jackass (laughs) running around being a jackass at people, relying on them needing to be willing to like have a social or physical fight with you to uh, turn you down. 
So that's, that's a male thing is to throw your weight around and operate within a hierarchy and seek status and to have a form of aggression and to have a form of, like that could all be male. It's just that you're doing it in a way that doesn't contribute anything. You're a parasite. You consume without providing, right? So this parasitic version of masculinity is not the good version, but it's undeniably an extension of being male. And the same way that when it comes to women, women maintain social standards by their socialization and their gossip with each other. I don't mean gossip here in just the negative way, but the way that women talk with each other, women set a background kind of white noise, what social standards are acceptable. Women can determine the social status of a person or destroy it. That's the way that women really regulate a lot of stuff socially. So what's the toxically feminine version of that? Being really unkind and destroying people's social standing for no good reason, without justice, without mercy, just as a form of self-aggrandizement or to engage in petty ego battles or stuff like that. Using so, shame as a weapon to be wielded instead of using shame as a social tool to help people uh, be better in a yeah. civilized society. We all know the toxically feminine uh, caricature of like an eighth grade or a teenage girl. Mean Girls is actually a fantastic demonstration of this, where someone's social standing can be utterly eviscerated by women with social status just based upon words. Mm -hmm. Men's social status and the way that they jockey for things doesn't work in the same way. A female bully does not operate in the same way that a male bully does. A male bad guy who's just a real net negative to his social circle or people around him operates in a very different thuggish way compared to women who are kind of a toxic millstone around the neck who just are poisonous socially and kind of rely on no one calling them out or not being willing to like engage with them as a way of ruling the roost. So yeah, this toxic maleness, this toxic femaleness exists. The difference between it and hyper maleness and hyper femaleness is that the hyper maleness is when you take a trait and then you just indulge in the trait and expand upon it for its own sake. Is that negative? No, not necessarily in the way that it's like actively harmful and like, like toxic is really a very good word here. It just poisons a situation. It's corrosive. It's a parasitic thing. No, it's just a complete distraction. It's just mm -hmm. missing the point. I think that that's, I just want to like pinpoint that. I think that's a great word for it is that it's a distraction. It's distracting from the main purpose of masculinity and why it's so important. Mm -hmm. Beauty like in things in the world is a good thing. Beauty for its own sake is a nice thing as well. It's good to be surrounded by beautiful things in your architecture, in your built environment, in the products that you own. Like choosing beautiful things is good in human beings. To be beautiful rather than not beautiful is a desirable thing. We respond to it. People prosper in a beautiful environment. Beauty fetishistically pursued at the expense of normal things and completely throwing other things out of balance that's, that's pretty bad. Mm -hmm. So what I was saying before about the muscle building thing, strength is good. Being aesthetic, bro, and having good muscular development, whatever. Yeah, that's all a nice thing. It is a value add if it doesn't come at cost mm -hmm. to other things that matter. But the law of diminishing returns applies everywhere, always, and all the time. And so the more effort you put into muscle development and beauty for its own sake, the more your like marginal improvements come at greater and greater cost, your ability to focus on all the other stuff you also need to be doing, the more you've fallen to the trap of a hyper-focus on something. So when it comes to being a man, is a man just strength? No. A strong man who works out a lot could still be really weak and be a complete boy when it comes to dating and family and social responsibility. The guy who just lives a life of gym tan laundry and also goes to party and get drunk and ends up in his 30s completely unattached to anything pro-social is not more of a man because he's got the muscles than a guy with a dad bod who's <laughs> a father of four and has a steady job and goes to his church or synagogue and stuff like that. Like 10 out of 10 Every guy who's the dad of four doing that stuff, just grinding away at his social duties is more of a man in a true sense than the overgrown boy who maybe has the hot car and uh, goes to lift a lot. And we all know that's the case. The guy who just throws himself into work because a man provides, a man is ambitious, a man earns, and then just ends up being one of those like weird internet hustlers who brags a lot about his income, an Andrew Tate style thing but has no legacy or pro-social commitment to civilization or God or anything like that, 
this is not a man. He's a boy's fantasy of things. And so that's what the hypermasculine focus is. In the same way that uh, the Hollywood Golightly thing adapted to the modern day for hyperfeminity is Instagram. Right. Is TikTok. It's I want to be adored. I want to be sought after for my beauty and admired like that. I want to be basically a trophy who's beloved. And I want to. And it's legitimately there, like seen through the amount of likes you get. Yes. Like that's a hyper feminine thing is to focus upon that social attention in that way and have that social credibility. Right. And as we talked about that feeling of being desired, that feeling of being desired. And obviously guys want to be desirable too, but for the male, it's that sense of like prestige and regard in one domain. It overlaps but it's really a distinct vibe and they're each a hyper version of things of I'm overly concerned with these trappings that attend with the idea of being like prominent as a male or prominent as a female, but I'm just going to do that for its own sake. I'm going to gain right. it. And so, so I want to yeah. just like, like break it into pieces then. So hyper masculinity, just as an overall idea, distraction. It, it's to- a distracted focus on a part instead of the whole. Toxic masculinity poisonous and can actually hurt people. Yes. And then we've got this great version of masculinity, what what masculinity should be and what I you were all kind the of parts and balance baby. It's all the parts and balance and you were kind of mentioning it before and it's the thing that I really love talking to you about because it is such a wonderful thing to recognize and realize is that masculinity may not the the best version of masculinity may not be exactly what we what we think of when we think of the word masculine, but it's the man who is a father who is taking care of his family, who's going to work every day, who comes home and spends time with his children, spends time with his wife. And he may not be in peak physical condition. He may not have 20 women on his arm. That's in fact, the opposite of true good masculinity, Mm -hmm. but he is doing what's right and doing it in the way that a man should. And I love that because it is so much less about the the picture of it than it is about the godliness the substance. of it. And when it comes to what a man is, it really is a matter, and what a woman is, it really is a matter of you know it when you see it. Mm-hmm. And it is something based on examples. And that's why I think you resort to the Millie from Seven Brides for Seven Brothers all the time. You know a woman when you see one, because you know the impact she has on others. You see by the demonstration of her action, the burdens that she bears, and also where womanhood does not extend. She's not going out into the fields to thresh wheat mm-hmm. like her husband, Adam Pontaby and Seven Brides and Seven Brothers. She's not out there threatening to lick any son of a bitch who's <laughs> uh, going to act immoral. It's a different kind of strength and vigor, even though it does mean doing a lot of labor, even though it does mean holding bad, like, uh, courish guys to um, account, Mm -hmm. but it's just different. One uh, thing that struck me here is uh, I want to read a poem, which is kind of a silly thing it sounds like, but it's actually, it's the poem If by Rudyard Kipling, and it's a fantastic description of masculinity by example of what it is in effect. Where did you hear this poem? This was recommended to me by my (laughs) father-in-law, who is a very big fan of the poem, and it really is fantastic. If by Rudyard Kipling. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting or being lied about, don't deal in lies or being hated, don't give way to hating and yet don't look too good nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster, and treat those two imposters just the same, if you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves, to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you give your life to broken, and stoop and build them up with worn-out tools, if you can make one heap of all your winnings, and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss, and lose, and start again at your beginnings, and never breathe a word about your loss, if you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone, And so hold on when there's nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings, nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but none too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it, and, which is more, you'll be a man, my son. 
I think that that poem is really a, a good example and something to keep in mind when you're trying to figure out what exactly masculinity should look like. It really is such a beautiful poem and it does capture exactly what we're talking about. But yeah, talking, bringing it back to Fight Club. Bringing it back to Fight Club, what it shows about hypermasculinity is much like Holly Golightly, it's sheer attractiveness to people who are not moored in something purpose-driven, right? The narrator in the movie, corporate drone, materialistic life. Materialism, consumerism are not it. Capitalism is great in terms of you are free from basically being exploited as a form of slave. It means that needs of people can be met. It means you're not going to be dealing with the privation of poverty. Not enough can be said about that. It's only people raised in a rich society that can forget how important it is not to be a poor society in terms of you will die younger, you will live more miserably, you will suffer more tragedy if you can't afford all the things that go to preventing that. So I got no bad rap against capitalism, but capitalism ain't your religion. Yeah, it's well, not and I talk about to earn and fill things with possessions. No, no. Well, and there's a difference between capitalism and yeah. consumerism, but that's a different conversation. Yes, it's just that when someone offers consumerism and the acquisition of material goods as the point of it all, it's wrong. And so capitalism is great for what it does, but it's not spiritual. And too many people kind of on the right for too long thought that capitalism and freedom were things that basically constitute spirituality, or that you didn't need to worry about religiosity and the point of it all because we had capitalism and freedom. And that's just not it. They lead to better material prosperity, which is nothing to sneeze at. It really isn't. It's just that it's irrelevant to the question of, well, what do we do now that we're not worried about the tragedy of being poor? There's no answer forthcoming. So you end up with people like the Edward Norton office drone who hates his empty life and genuinely, legitimately, reasonably found no value in the consumerist lifestyle. He talks about how he had his Ikea life perfect. He had his perfect little appointed apartment with all his little stupid knickknacks. And there's this great moment where uh, there's like a CGI composed shot panning across his apartment and it fills in with all like the little knickknacks that he's mm -hmm. bought and their price tag and their catalog description. It's really quite uh, well done. Uh, David Fincher's very good at his visuals. He's very smooth. He's yes. a very smooth director. Very smooth, very well composed. He achieves exactly what he wants to achieve. But that character has nothing. He is right to reject his nothing lifestyle. He's right to reject it and try to go to something more important and more real and more honest. It's just that what he ends up at is some pagan self-fulfillment by turning inwards on himself. Mm -hmm. Self-improvement is masturbation. Idealizing yourself as, well, if only I had something that matters more, like Brad Pitt's appearance and abs. If only I were charismatic and people liked me. If only I had, like, true friends who wouldn't leave me and are basically a cult. If only we rejected that stuff that was truly not fulfilling, the garbage consumerism, then finally I'd be complete. No! Absolutely not. When he turns to that, it completely falls apart. All these things that he pursued are completely unsustaining. The only thing that actually has a lick of meaning at the end of the movie is the connection he forms with the character of Marla, who is a completely insane degenerate. But the movie does end on a positive note of the main character's rejected his consumerist lifestyle. He's rejected the Tyler Durden entire ethos and everything there, but he's maintained that the consumerism wasn't there. And so what does he end on? What's the positive redemptive note? connection with like a woman and actually having something real built there. Right. That's like the thing. So the whole thing that Fight Club shows about hypermasculinity is how as much as it's good to embrace maleness, the trappings of it, which end up being kind of a consumer thing itself, very much so the abs, the appearance, the charisma, the swagger, none of that is actually sustaining all that is illusory as well. And the only thing that actually leads to any form of redemption, meaning and like calmness at the end is turning back to the idea of having a duty to another human being and being with that woman and trying to build something there. Because mm -hmm. all the stuff he built with his boys that was hyper-masculine was literally destructive and could not and would not build anything in its place. And what's so interesting, I mean, it really is a, a lesson in how nihilism does not actually bring any... It doesn't even exist because the void it leaves is filled by some assertion of value, right? Everything here means nothing, because this stuff matters more. So for all like the nihilism of the Taylor Durden, he ends up being an anarchist who wants to bring everyone back to some kind of primitivist communism. Right. And he's just looking for what's real and what people don't understand because 
we live in an, in an age in which religion is is passe. But the truth is that religion, tradition, family, community, the, these things, there's a reason that the people who are part of them are the most fulfilled and express the most happiness. And they may be passe, quote unquote, but the truth is that that's really the only path to meaning. So you can see that very much in this film. And when it ends, like you're saying, with his connection with Marla, that's a small piece of the grander picture of what people need to Mm -hmm. survive. And it's his first little plank that he could build a raft out of. Right. Uh, Yeah. And uh, yeah, for all the bluster of the Tyler Durden character, everything that stems from trying to embrace that actually brings nothing to the main character. The only good decision he made was to reject being a consumerist, but he was consuming a product of his own. And of course it led to nowhere. Exactly. So I think that's a good place to end it. I really enjoyed this conversation though, and I'm looking forward to our next podcast. Maybe it'll be what we were talking about in the middle here mm-hmm. when we took that little detour, but maybe it'll be about something else. You never know what you're going to get in a couple weeks at our next <laughs> podcast. But before we close out, we should talk about our highlight of the week. Yes. And then we need to do plugs. Then plugs. Okay. So let's start with the highlight of the week. My highlight of the week was that I spoke at the Claire Booth Luce Center for Conservative Women on how to date and date with purpose and how to not make dating suck. Essentially, dating is pretty terrible, and I explained how you can make it not terrible. And it was really amazing to speak to all of these young conservative women. It was just a blast. It was really fun, too, because my parents came, my husband came, my baby came. We all went to Orlando and had just a really nice weekend there. But it was it was really fun to get to speak on this topic. I really like talking about relationships. I really like talking about marriage. I really like sharing good advice about life with, with you guys. So I had a great time, and that's my highlight of the week. What about you? My highlight of the week would be Ron DeSantis' 20-point blowout Woo-hoo! in Florida. Um, the red yeah. tsunami here in Florida. Yes, it, it was localized. Yes, so it was localized the, uh, to Florida. It was the red storm surge in <laughs> Florida and then uh, a light drizzle to no rain everywhere else in the country. Um, well, I guess that's what you get if you're not going to live in DeSantis land. Yes. I have no further commentary upon the midterm elections from yesterday because I... Who wants to get into that? But I will say I am super happy that DeSantis is not a flash in the pan. Who would have thought he would be? Obviously, he is very popular here. But to see it confirmed and that Florida has swung to dark red from truly a toss-up state just a few years ago, super positive, makes me happy, makes me chuffed, in fact. <laughs> and that's that's a highlight for me. So before we close out, we're going to do some plugs. What do you have to plug? I have to plug the Classically Abbey Substack, <laughs> where you do the AV Club and you watch movies not like Fight Club, but like <laughs> Breakfast at Tiffany's, and you do a live discussion afterwards. And people who subscribe to the Substack can also submit questions for our live stream Q&As, which Abigail does her own, her own, and then also with me. And we got a lot of good questions in the last one that we did together. It was a lot of fun to do. And you also have your girl chats. You also have your book club. And I have to say the book club sounds mighty appealing. I can hear it going from the other room when I'm working and she does it. And the discussion is spirited. It is lively. And it gets deep with things. And the books they read are both fun and no slouch. Alternatively. Sometimes they're fun and no slouch. Sometimes they're a slouch and fun. Sometimes they're, uh, yeah. Well, that's really sweet. I thought you had something specific for yourself no, to plug. No, but no, I, I appreciate it. I got it. nothing to plug other than my law firm, uh, Dylan Law Group. Yeah, you, you have a constitutional or First Amendment or defamation or election or political <laughs> or business issue. Boy, howdy, do I have a law firm for you? <laughs> uh, but no, no, I'm not here to plug me. I'm here to plug Abby. So yeah, if you want to join my Substack, you'll also have access to the comment section for this podcast, which is pretty cool. And it's only $7 a month. Or if you subscribe for the whole year, you'll get two months for free. So thank you guys all for listening to today's episode of Classically Ever After. And we'll see you guys in the next one. Bye. Bye. Bye.